0: Well, good afternoon, and welcome to the Cato Institute. Uh, My name is Marian Tupi. I'm a policy analyst with the Center for Global Liberty and Prosperity. Uh, Thank you very much for uh, um, coming out on this beautiful day. Cato's advocacy in favor of uh, limited government and free markets is based on both uh, moral and consequentialist grounds. Uh, Freedom, we believe, has value in and of itself. And growth of government can, and often does, come at the expense of freedom. Or as Thomas Jefferson put it, the course of history shows that, a go- that as government grows, liberty decreases. But growth of government, especially when it is fueled by tax increases, can result in deleterious consequences. Uh, chief among those deleterious consequences being uh, lower economic growth and compromised standards of living in the long run. This is a particularly interesting subject today as Washington debates uh, how to finance the federal deficit and federal debt. President Obama and many members of his party argue in in, uh, favor of higher taxes. And uh, their special focus is on uh, higher taxes on the very wealthy. Getting the top American earners to pay their fair share, uh, however uh, fairness is defined, Uh, is not a new concept, however. In 1913, when the federal income tax began, uh, the top income tax rate was 7%. By the end of World War I, tax rates rose on all income levels, with the rate reaching 77% on Americans making over a million dollars. President Warren Harding and Calvin Coolidge, Presidents Warren Harding and Calvin Coolidge, assisted by the Treasury Secretary Andrew Mellon, reversed that trend in the 1920s. By 1929, the top marginal tax rate fell to 24% on Americans making over $100,000. And what were the results of this policy change? Taxes paid by people earning more than $100,000 increased from $300 million to $700 million. And the share of the overall income tax paid by this group of taxpayers increased from one-third in the early 1920s to two-thirds by the late 1920s. Economic growth soared, resulting in the famous, or infamous, depending on your point of view, roaring 20s. So do the 1920s uh, provide an alternative to President Obama's call for higher taxes? Could our deficits and debts be reduced through higher growth brought about by lower tax rates? That is a subject that will be explored by our panel today. Amity Schles, our first speaker, has been a syndicated columnist for more than a decade. Bloomberg View carries her column. She directs the economic project at the Bush Center, the 4% growth project. Amity is committed to economic education and her department sponsors a national economic presidential debate program for for varsity and new debaters. Over the past five years, Amity Schles has taught economics of the 1930s in the MBA program at New York University Stern. Until 2000, she was a member of the editorial board of the Wall Street Journal specializing in economics. In the early 1990s, She served um, as the journal's feature or op-ed editor. Prior to that, she followed uh, the collapse of communism uh, for the Wall Street Journal Europe. And over the years, she has published in uh, many publications, including uh, National Review, Forbes, The New Republic, Foreign Affairs, The American Spectator, Die Deutsche Zeitung, and Die Zeit. Uh, She has won the Hayek Prize, which is sponsored by the Manhattan Institute. And also the Bastiat Prize in 2002, where uh, in fact I was, uh, and I remember that very well because uh, Mrs. Thatcher, Thatcher was there. there. Yes, right. Mrs. Thatcher
1: was there. Um,
0: she's of course a celebrated author of uh, *The Forgotten Man* in uh, a *Forgotten Man* from uh, 2007, which was a national bestseller. Uh, that *National Review* called the finest uh, history of Great Depression ever written, and. Uh, Recently, of course, uh, she has uh, finished writing her book, uh, her biography of Coolidge, um, which I believe has been on the bestseller list uh, for the past uh, seven weeks. So uh, with that plug for a book about uh, America's 30th and much underappreciated president, uh, let me hand it over to Amity Schles.
1: Can you hear me? Can you hear me? I have a very weak voice. Uh, Thank you, Marion. At at that event, uh, Mrs. Thatcher was there, the award of the Bastiat. Were you there?
2: I don't think so. No, it was
1: in London. um, And she she, uh, coached my son how to look into the camera because he was shy, and uh, she she picked which was my better side, and then turned me so that my better profile would be captured by the camera. So she she had it all down how to be a, a, an iron lady, and and I got a little uh, tutoring at that at that session. It was a lot of a lot of fun. Um, I I don't know who looked at the budget um, that the uh, White House um, issued. Um, I kind of had. A, a, a Cyprus moment uh, looking at it, um, uh, particularly page 18, the right column, um, where it says something about uh, 401ks and um, IRAs that I, I, didn't, I hadn't seen before. Did you see this? Um, where, I, 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 maybe I'm wrong, but it basically said tax-preferred accounts should be, uh, people should get be able to save in their tax-preferred account. About 205,000 per annum. That seemed to the White House the appropriate retirement amount. So, I mean, about enough so that they would have 205,000 per annum, or a total of 3 million in in such accounts. And then it didn't really say um, what happens when you hit 3 million in that account. Um, is it over? Do they take some of the money out? But it seemed to be more than just uh, ceasing to contribute to such an account. Um, and that really um, this this one area ought to be uh, governed by even more rules, and um, uh, this one area of the tax-preferred account, well, we should kind of get used to the idea of the government hand going in, the greedy hand going into that area more than we had uh, expected before. And I, I think there were two uh, reactions of people who read this. Um, the Oh, and then the White House allowed that they, they, the government would get nine billion in revenue over ten years. That's not that much uh, from, from this change. Um, it thought um, by, by restricting these accounts in some new way. Um, and the first reaction one has is some of my money is being taken away uh, because it will be taxed more aggressively if it can't be in this account, or it will be as a penalty when I take it out in order to the conform with the rules. But the second reaction one tends to have when one hears something like that is um, a sense of distrust. That was an area I thought you wouldn't mess with. I trusted you over on that. And now even there, you're going to take from me, reach into my pocket. And those are two different things. One is the number um, my tax bill will go up, the number that the government gets will change. That's sort of a math, a, a calculation. Um, That has to do with the number of the budget or the size of the government. But the second one is about trust, Um, a civic problem. And of course, trust contributes to growth, too. So this lunch, almost lunch, I thought I'd tell you the story. um, Can I grab that book? It kind of is my security blanket today. Um, The story um, of what happened in the 20s, thank you, Marion, in relation to these uh, two things. It's a little bit of a surprising story. Um, uh, Marion mentions uh, in there that the tax rate got down to 24%, um, the top marginal rate, which, as you know, is below Ronald Reagan's 28%. Do you know the president whose rate was 24? It wasn't Calvin Coolidge. It was Hoover. Um, so I'm going to talk about that. Um, the story of the t- 20s tax experience um, is a tax triumph, but it's also a tax tragedy in some way for um, Coolidge, the, the president, from 23 to 29, Hoover's predecessor, this 30th president of the United States. It's a real drama, um, and, and we don't usually have economic dramas or we have them, but nobody else appreciates them. Uh, so what I like about Coolidge is uh, you know, mostly presidents are war presidents. They're commanders in chief, right? And we know that economics takes heroes and bravery. Coolidge was an economic hero for us, um, an economic commander in chief, an economic general, um, one who sometimes chose not to command and delegated to colonels. I'll talk about that. Who refrained from commanding on principle of delegation and who won his war because he was a good general in that way. He got the tax rates down to 25. He got the revenues up. He, um, the one takeaway about Coolidge uh, for anyone, any year, any time, is that when he left office after those 67 months, he came in in 1923 upon Harding's death and left in March 29. The federal budget was actually lower than when he came in. Um, and right away, when you're talking to students or policy people, they'll say, is that relative to GDP? Or is that real, uh, Amity? You know, the, um, sophisticated people will ask questions like that. It was real and it was nominal because they had deflation. And it was not relative to GDP, notwithstanding strong growth. Our project's called the 4% growth project. They had very strong growth in the 20s, like that. Notwithstanding increase in the population, notwithstanding um, anything, they actually shrank the budget um, under Coolidge. Um, it's a little complicated story with a few twists and turns, and I want to say again, I'm grateful to Dan and Marion, my two good friends, and Cato, a very good friend to me of long standing. Probably the third or fourth book I've presented here for, for for giving me this time. Um, the story doesn't start complicated. It starts with an economic situation uh, similar to our own in some surprising ways. Early twenties, um, the debt of the country is much higher than people imagined it, it could be just a few years earlier um, from the war. So they go up. Uh, 10 billion, 20 billion, towards 30 billion when they had expected the debt to be about two. Um, Inflation, uh, energy was, the energy sector was doing great. People were getting automobiles, remember. There was inflation, though. prices. Well, prices were too high, but the government wasn't admitting it was inflation. That's very similar to now. Um, The Treasury Secretary uh, of Wilson McAdoo rivaled uh, our current Treasury Secretaries in his hubris about money and spending and our our current Fed. Um, The Taxes were already high. Uh, You know that I think Marion said that the taxes were in the 70s coming out of the war. There was a large spread between the price of municipal bonds and the price of corporate bonds, reflecting um, the fact that companies and individuals were fleeing. There was a capital strike. Um, The tax sector to hide in the untaxed municipal bonds um, the, the, this tax engine was rather inefficient. If you look in the charts, you can see that there were only 21 returns filed by people earning over a million dollars um, in the early one of the early 20s years. That meant a lot of people. There were more millionaires than that. A lot of people were hiding their money somewhere. There was abiding, troubling unemployment. There were two groups that were kind of angry, seeking entitlements. Um, remember, the progressive movement is on the march, and in Europe, there are outright revolutions, and a lot of the American soldiers coming home have seen the European Revolution, thought they might like to do something somewhat similar at home. Uh, the one group that's quite angry are the veterans. Remember how many people served in World War I? It was universal conscription. Remember, there were no antibiotics Um, uh, remember that their wives did not work when these soldiers came home. So they came home in pain with the prospect of reduced employment um, and uh, not much help, and they wanted a pension, basically something like Social Security. That's the bonus that you've heard about. And the second entitlement group, I I think um, I would call them that, are the farmers who wanted some kind of permanent equilibrating subsidy especially as prices began to go out so it's an angry country right that Harding and Coolidge encounter when uh, they come in um, there's very little voter trust you don't trust the military very much after you've been through it often right uh, the, the, the trust level uh, it, you know there are times in our country feels like a bad airport. That was one. This is one, too. You, you, whereas this boarding pass is fake. I have to get another boarding pass. You go to the place with your boarding pass, and whoops, they won't accept it. It was, it was that, that that trust level. There were riots. Coolidge actually came to prominence because of the way he handled the riot following the police strike in Boston. He put it down with force. Very bitter moment, Um Driven in good measure, I want to add, by unacknowledged inflation. The policeman would not have struck had prices not gone up 50 or 60 percent while their wages stayed the same. What to do? Uh, Coolidge, you know, temperament is part of the story. He was born in Vermont. His father collected the snow tax in his town, Plymouth Notch, a town where the railroad chose not to go. His railroad all over Vermont, but not Plymouth Notch. His father was the sheriff who took the people in the cart when they didn't pay their taxes, maybe to to the jail, including people he knew very well. His father ran the schools and had to figure out how to pay the teacher. Very uh, tight background of farming people in a place that, that the government later determined in the New Deal so wonderful. The New Deal is wonderful. It determined that scarcely an acre of Coolidge's hometown, Plymouth Notch, was arable. They're farming there, but it's not worth it, right? Um, so he was a, a, a tight type, um, and he knew from experience you had to hold on to pennies. And he didn't really like to risk losing pennies, either for the government or for himself. He, it, that was bred in him, and I was also, I would say, genetic uh, personality. Um, and the emblem of Coolidge's mentality vis-a-vis fis- he was not a Jack Kemp. He was not a large, happy fiscal hero. He he was tight, um, and the em, the way you know, uh, kind of the emblem that I found that fit, suited Coolidge best. It was so typical uh, Coolidge was. He the White House got twin lion cubs uh, from a mare in South Africa. Nice gift. Mrs. Coolidge loves animals. They love kitty cats, etc. The White House of the Coolidges they named those lion cubs, budget, bureau, and tax reduction. <laughs> and, and they were even weight. They were fed with steaks and kept at an even weight. So there wasn't a big old lion called tax cut and a little bitty weenie runty lion called budget bureau. They were even. And that is the Coolidge personality as he confronts you know what they're going to do. Um, those who cast him as a visceral supply cider of the jolly variety, a happy warrior, he isn't. That doesn't mean he's not good, but he's different. Um, the the administration, remember, his treasury secretary is Andy Mellon, a sort of Warren Buffett or a Brin, you know, a figure uh, from commerce without parallel. Um, and what did this, the Coolidge administration do? Um, well, they by temperament, Mellon's a bit different. Coolidge is a bit more like a preacher. Um, Mellon is a bit more like a scientist. Um, He has an idea. He dislikes Mellon, um, the inefficiency of the tax code. I told you they had high rates, and they had very few people paying them at the top. Um, His idea is from business, uh, business school, like the sort of thing you would teach at NYU Stern. Well, um, when you cut the price, you lose profits, but you can make it up on volume. Every one of our children or spouses or us learned this in business school. It's basic business, right? Cut price, make it up on volume. Walmart, right? And uh, Mellon talked about that in railroading. You charge what the traffic will bear as a freight price. And if the trains stay away, the cars stay away, the businesses don't want to use your railroad, you cut the freight cost, right? You cut your toll. Very pragmatic scientific attitude. And so he wanted to do what he called scientific taxation, um, which Dan will probably talk about more. Melon. Uh, and see, you know, when you chain, tinker with the toy, right? Income tax is very young, it's a toy. Nobody expected it can be that good. So tariffs brought in a lot of money in this period. The income tax was this little weenie adjunct uh, to the tariff engine at the time. And um, Mellon's idea, um, first under Harding and then under Coolidge, is also he wants to get money into the system, to the government. Um, Well, maybe we'll end the tax-protected status of municipal bonds. He tried to get a constitutional amendment to do that, to force people to put their money in um, good ideas instead of uh, just in town infrastructure, which is where the municipal bonds went. Um, He fails on that, so he goes at the same problem another way. Mellon is a wonderfully analytic type. He says, I'll cut the tax rates so that the spread between uh, the, the municipal bonds will be just relatively less attractive and people will pay taxes and invest in new ideas instead of town governments. I'll broaden the base too, uh, so that more people pay taxes. I'll get a better system. And the story of the rate cuts of the 20s, you may know they cut taxes. A number of times, friends of Reagan have told the story that after Reagan was shot, He read a bio of Coolidge um, while he was recovering, and he counted the times they cut taxes. They cut taxes a lot, one, two, three, four, maybe five times. So they cut them once in 1921. Before Coolidge was president, Harding dies. They cut them again in 24 rates. And they cut the tax rates again in 26. Always um, in the later part, Coolidge and Mellon working together, two silent guys, one a scientist and one um, a saver, uh, more on the clergy side, um, but both silent. And this was an enormous campaign equal to a war campaign, um, and they never talked. People said they conversed in pauses. So so that's interesting, too. And they, they did succeed. So you see the rate going 73, 58, 46, that's Coolidge, 25, three points below the Reagan rate, Coolidge. It was hard to do, and we forget that. Um, Everyone says, oh, government was smaller. People didn't expect much from government. The progressives were on the march. They really did want to nationalize power. Um, people thought they might. They wanted to renationalize the railroad, which had just been nationalized and denationalized in World War One, and they got a serious amount of the vote in 1924. They got 17 percent of the vote. So you can't discount all this. Um, it was there. Coolidge. I, I think it's important to look at his mind watching this process. He's wary. On the one hand, he's wary about Mellon's cuts because he thinks Mellon's idea that you might get more revenue when you cut the rate. Well, that might that might not work out. And then where would you be? You'd have a deficit, right? Coolidge just genetically didn't like that. And then he was also aware, what made him even more nervous was what if, what if Mellon's idea worked? And when you cut the rate, you got more revenue, then, then a lot of revenue would come in and the Democrats would spend it. <laughs> it's very between a rock and a hard place. very uncomfortable, right? Um, but he, he has another reason for doing this. He's for smaller government. He wants to quick get the money. He's paid on the debt before the politicians get a hold of it. So you you can feel the anxiety in the White House in these years. Um, And yet, Coolidge also is a delegator. Mellon is clearly a talent. It was said three presidents served under him. He's a figure like Bernanke. Uh, in the culture. Um, and Coolidge was a fabulous delegator. And Mellon, Mellon does execute. And lo and behold, they get the results. They get more money than they said they would with the rate cuts. They um, get the rich, more rich pay their fair share. <laughs> Many more uh, wealthy top returns on the, in the books. All of a sudden, instead of 20, they might have 10 times that. Um, the spread between the municipal bonds And the corporate paper narrows. The the economy booms, But you can look at the patents and see a lot of the boom of the 20s, very real and beautiful. People having new ideas. Um, This is the period where people got toilets, where they figured out television, though we only got it later, in addition to the things you know about, such as automobile. So Mellon is happy his experiment worked. And that is important for us to remember um, in these discussions. Uh, now it really did. Um, but it's also important to remember that Coolidge thought they worked for another reason, which is that the people trusted him to cut the taxes because he thought taxes were wrong, no matter where we were in the business cycle. They was just wrong to have it was legalized larceny, as he put it, um to have taxes too heavy. So he wasn't at all interested in the stimulus side, and I do believe that he was interested in the trust, that people could trust that the U.S. government would get out of the way so they could have fun. Uh, That's why Coolidge cut taxes, uh, very um, different. The machine, okay, Mellon had that, but that's not why Coolidge was interested. Um, I would like to try to quantify how much value that trust added when we quantify growth. I, I would, uh, you know, uh, I'll entertain suggestions. But it, it did. Um, you can see it very well um, in the rate of contract writing along with the patents. Um, when we tell this story, we kind of forget the trust part. We just say, look, we figured out how to get more revenue, supply-side rate cuts, oh, you know, more activity, and so on. We focus on the tax toy. And I think um, Coolidge's this book is a little bit of a tragedy. Uh, um, Coolidge inadvertently set the stage for the destruction of some of the things he prized, like smaller government, because that tax engine was so good, it was turning into a regular monster, By the end, well, tariffs were no longer necessary. This was becoming obvious because the income tax machine collected so much money, um, and people became obsessed with the toy. This is the thesis of my friend Joe Thorndike of Tax Notes, who wrote did write a book called Their Fair Share, and I think he's right. Coolidge and Mellon, through their intelligent experimenting and their development, their improvement of the automobile, the Model A of taxation, um, gave their successors an engine. And the first successor who used it as an engine, who who wanted to play with the tax machine, was Hoover. And when he cut the tax to 24 percent, because there was a crash, right? September uh, 29 was the crash. The rate went down to 24 percent that autumn. It was a temporary stimulative tax cut that Hoover put in. It was not a trustworthy cut, because it was going to go away. And of course, it did go away. And then Hoover played with the machine some more. Um, At the very end of of, uh, Mellon time, uh, tragically, they raised the rate into the 60s. And I I do think this is the emphasis on the toy. Coolidge cut taxes in government so well, he enabled others to raise them. If you look at our discussion today, we have two components, um, as in the the case of um, the endangered 401K, as in the case of Cyprus. One is how do we get the money and solve the fiscal problems? But the other is how do you get people to trust uh, so they want to grow again? Um, I think that when we're planning and talking, if we just talk like behaviorists and rabbits, oh, the rabbit will be happy and bounce forward and eat the carrot um we we us make ourselves um absolutely indistinct from Democrats or um republic- you know all both parties they're they're alike they they kind of uh, infantilize uh the taxpayer um well we'll give him two carrots um incentive uh it, it, then you don't get the growth you expect hoover didn't get it we didn't get it either party when we did these little uh behaviorist um, exercises. The real part is the commitment to smaller government has to be there too. So that's the Coolidge legacy. Um, When we speak of it in politics, I hope that part comes out as well. Thank you.
0: So once again, the book is Coolidge and uh, on sale in all fine bookstores everywhere. our next speaker is Dan Mitchell. Um, Dan is a top expert on tax reform and supply-side tax policy. He's a strong advocate of flat tax and international tax competition. Prior to joining Cato, he was a senior fellow at the Heritage Foundation and an economist for Senator Bob Peckwood in the Senate Finance Committee. He also served on the 1988 Bush-Quail transition team and was director of tax and budget policy for Citizens for a Sound Economy. His articles can be found in such publications as Wall Street Journal, New York Times, Investor's Business Daily, and Washington Times. He's a frequent guest on uh, radio and television and a popular speaker on Lecture Circuit. He holds bachelor's and master's degrees in economics from University of Georgia and a Ph.D. in economics from George Mason University. Dan,
2: the floor is yours. Well, thank you, Marian. Um, Since my job is to talk about what the implications of uh, Amity's book are, Uh, But also, if, if you're commenting on a book, in theory, you should try to find something negative to say, even if it's constructive criticism. That was very difficult. But Amity gave me an opening in her remarks. She made a mistake. She talked about IRAs being tax preferred. No, they're tax neutral. Tax neutral. Uh, IRAs are a way of avoiding and protecting people against double taxation. So I did find one that wasn't in your book, but it was in your remarks. So I so I did feel that I achieved that. Also, I have to make one correction on a on a Marianne's introduction. Uh, you say I'm a strong advocate of a flat tax. No, what I'm an advocate of is small government like we had during the Coolidge years when we were that close to having a government small enough that we wouldn't need any broad-based tax whatsoever. Uh, so I actually, unfortunately, when you work at the Cato Institute, you're not in control of the bio they put on your webpage. page. Uh, and I didn't think to have to uh, remind Marion of my real views before he gave the introduction. Uh, but anyhow, let me go ahead. Uh, Before I talk about the implications and lessons that we should learn uh, from the Coolidge era and from Amity's remarks, let me just make a few comments about the book, because it really is something that you should read. And of course, that means you should buy it as well, which I'm sure Amity would agree with. I do have one criticism of it, though, Uh, not in terms of what was in the book, but in the fact that I'm a creature of habit and at night, I like finding an empty novel to read so my mind can wind down because all day I have to read and write about serious things. And when I was reading this book in advance of this uh, panel, uh, what I would do is I would read it at home. And that was not good for me because instead of falling asleep within 15 minutes by reading a novel that was empty, I'm sitting here, oh, what's on the next page? And reading about all these fights about how they got the tax cuts through in the 1920s. So it was not good for me getting a good night's sleep which of course is a compliment because it's a very well-written book. It mixes the big themes with the small and interesting details of the time. It's a history book as much as it is an economics book. Uh, And one thing that definitely comes across uh, for someone like me is Coolidge is the new Reagan or Reagan was the new Coolidge, however you wanna say it, but he very clearly had uh, both a, a, for moral and economic reasons, he wanted better tax policy, better spending policy, better fiscal policy overall. And one of the fascinating things about reading the book is how intimately involved he was with planning what, from our perspective, would seem to be trivial micro details of the budget. But then as I thought about it, as I'm, as I'm reading through the book and then sort of getting this historical perspective, I realized, well, of course he was involved in these very small decisions about the budget because government was very small at the time. So nowadays, with a $3.7 trillion budget uh, in Washington, People, by definition, have to focus on really, really big numbers, and they can't even begin to get at the level of of understanding how programs are managed and run. But when you have a very small government at the time, and you're working to make it smaller, then yes, you can focus on whether you're spending 100,000 here, or how you're managing this program, or conducting this activity of government. So a lesson to be learned is that if you want effective government, uh, if you want well-managed government, it's a very good idea, to have small government. One of the little anecdotes in the book that I that I enjoyed was where Amity writes about Coolidge being uh, being against the idea of Congress being in session more because he thought it meant that they would do more. Uh, and that sort of struck a chord with me, because I've often joked in my speeches that I would be happy to triple Congress's pay if they just promised to stay home uh, all year. You know, n- If you're a libertarian, you have to assume that 99 out of 100 times if legislation passes, it's not going to be a, a good thing at all. Uh, as Amity remarked, Coolidge was sort of the original supply sider, although he, he- Mellon was really the supply sider and Coolidge was approaching it more from a from I guess a moralistic or preacher uh, sense uh, but you know clearly from reading the interaction of, a, of who of a Coolidge and Mellon in the book uh, combined however it worked out, whoever was driving it they understand uh, supply side in the right sense you're lowering tax rates to boost incentives not because you think someone should have more money in their pockets. He, they clearly understood the Laffer curve when Art wasn't even a gleam in his father's eye. And as uh, Amity said, there was definitely a starve the beast component to their analysis. They did not want to lower tax rates in a way that would give the government more money so that government could be bigger. They wanted to lower tax rates so you could somehow figure out What is the right level? And this is where the scientific taxation term, I guess, would apply. They were trying to figure out how low could you lower tax rates while still raising that necessary but very small amount of revenue uh, for the government. Uh, Amity mentioned capital on strike. Uh, That definitely is something that comes across uh, when you read the book. You want money to be used productively. And this is where a lot of the analysis of municipal bonds Uh, comes into play. We don't really think about it now. It's not a big issue in tax reform discussion. Uh, People focus on what about the mortgage interest deduction or the charitable contributions deductions or the healthcare exclusion or what do you do about business taxation, depreciation versus expensing and so on and so forth. Back then a huge issue was municipal bonds uh, because still as today, If you're a rich person, you can put your money in municipal bonds and pay a 0% tax. And back then, uh, both Mellon and Coolidge were very concerned about, we don't want the productive capital of America being unproductive because it's tied up buying debt from state and local governments. You want it out there in private business investment. uh, And that, uh, unfortunately, is a lesson that uh, seems to have been lost over the many years. Coolidge recognized that temporary tax cuts didn't deliver bang for the buck, so he had the wisdom to reject Keynesianism before Keynes even published the general theory. Uh, so again, the book is something you should read for both historical and economic knowledge and lessons. Uh, but let's now talk about those lessons. What can we learn about this scientific taxation approach uh, from Coolidge and Mellon that should be applied today? Well, let's do a, a little bit of, a, of an analogy here. Let's pretend that you own a restaurant. And you're, of course, trying to figure out how to maximize the profit from your restaurant. Uh, You know, maybe you actually, you love being a cook, you love managing a restaurant, but also you want to make some money out of it. Would it ever occur to you, would you ever think, hey, I'm going to double the price of my hamburgers because that's going to give me twice as much revenue from hamburger sales. Unless you're a very incompetent uh, business manager and restaurant owner, you're going to understand, well, if I double the price of my hamburgers, I'm probably not going to sell as many hamburgers. Now, maybe people will still come into my restaurant, they'll buy other things, but maybe I'll just drive them away from my restaurant altogether because they really like hamburgers and they're going to go someplace else. And that analogy could apply to automobiles, it could apply to anything in the economy, services, goods, you name it. You don't double the price of something and expect that you're going to double your revenue. But in Washington, at the Joint Committee on Taxation, at the Office of Tax Analysis, with a few little wrinkles, that's basically what they do with tax policy, with the revenue estimating part of tax policy. They assume there is a linear relationship between tax rates and tax revenue. Whereas if you want to do scientific taxation, nobody uses that term anymore, of course, but perhaps we should, what you want to do is factor in, yes, we have tax rates, yes, we have tax revenue, but there's another very important variable you want to include, and that's taxable income. Because if it turns out that changes in tax rates affect people's behavior, that's going to affect the amount of taxable income they declare, and that's going to affect the amount of tax revenue that the government can collect. Uh, I used to work for Senator Packwood many years ago. One of the things that Senator Packwood did is he sent a letter to the Joint Committee on Taxation asking what would be the revenue effect if you imposed a 100% tax rate on all income above $200,000 a year. And back then, instead of doing 10 year revenue estimates, I think they did uh, either three or five year estimates. So the Joint Committee on Taxation gets back to them with a revenue estimate, and the numbers were basically the first year you'll collect $200 billion. And maybe that was right, yeah, you know, Maybe maybe they were looking at it the way Jerry Brown did with that uh, new surtax they imposed. Hey, if we impose higher taxes on income people earned last year, there, there can't be any supply-side response. So maybe the $200 billion figure was right. But what shocked Senator Packwood was that in the second year, the Joint Committee on Taxation said, oh, you're going to collect $230 billion, and the third year was, two, well, I think it was 263, billion. But it's basically every year they were assuming revenue would go up $30 billion a year, in a system where every penny you earned above $200,000 would be stolen by the government. Now ask yourself this, who on earth would bother earning or reporting income over $200,000 a year? Nobody. So Senator Packwood sends a letter back to the Joint Committee on Taxation and this wasn't exactly what he wrote, but he said, are you guys smoking crack? Did we even have crack back then? You're young and hit, Marion. You probably know about these things. Uh, yes, but he basically said, are you guys crazy? Think about this and get back to me. You know, is this really the revenue number you want to stick with? So the Joint Committee on Taxation eventually gets back to the senator. New estimates, $200 230, 260, but there's an asterisk. And this was back when we used paper instead of computer. So you didn't scroll down a screen. You went down to the bottom of the page. You looked at the asterisk. Our model assumes that there are no changes to GDP, employment, all these other macroeconomic aggregates. Now, Republicans, of course, subsequently took control of Congress in 1994 elections. And they ruled, with a little exception uh, when the Democrats controlled the Senate for uh, about a year or so, they ruled for 12 years. They left the system in place. And that's basically still the system we have today with a few improvements. Now the Joint Committee on Taxation does a little bit of microeconomic dynamic analysis, but no macroeconomic dynamic analysis. Uh, So that's sort of the mess that we're in right now. So what does scientific taxation tell us? What should we learn? How should we change the current system? And I'll go ahead and close on this. I'm gonna focus on taxes and the rich, because of course, if you look at the president's budget, He's proposing more taxes on the rich after, of course, he already got some taxes on the rich as part of the fiscal cliff deal. And I think for the foreseeable future, that's where the fights are going to be. What do we know about the rich? Well, if you look at IRS data, and every year the IRS puts out something called the statistics of income. And uh, let's look at one historical episode, and then let's look at some current data. The historical episode I want to give you is not the 1920s. Amity's already covered that. I want to give us uh, some historical numbers from the second coming of Calvin Coolidge, Ronald Reagan. In 1980, when Reagan took office, or when he was elected, didn't take office until 81, of course. But in 1980, we had a top tax rate of 70%. According to the IRS data, the amount of revenue we collected from those rich people making more than $200,000 a year was 19.7 billion. So let's think about this. 70% top tax rate, revenues of $19.7 billion. By the way, you see what I'm doing right here? This is called the Slovakian PowerPoint slide. (laughs) Marion's from Slovakia, so he understands. So 70% tax rate, $19.7 billion of revenue from the rich. Reagan lowered that top tax rate all the way down to 28%. What happened to revenue from the rich? Did it go down to about $8.5 billion a proportional reduction? Did it go down to $15 billion, implying that the tax cut more than halfway paid for itself? Did revenue stay at $19.7 billion or whatever it was, uh, meaning that the tax cut fully paid for itself? What actually happened during the 1980s? Well, if we look at the 1988 statistics of income and look at the data The amount of revenue collected from the rich, 99 plus billion dollars, more than five times as much revenue. Now, a couple of caveats are very important here, and these caveats would apply in the 1920s just like they would apply in the 1980s and today. There's a lot more to economic policy and economic performance than just fiscal policy. Uh, Amity already mentioned the importance of trust in a system. Property rights, rule, rule of law, different ways of saying that. There's also regulatory policy, monetary policy, trade policy. So we have no idea, if we're going to be honest, whether Reagan's lower tax rates on the so-called rich uh, doubled revenue from the rich, tripled revenue from the rich. Certainly they didn't cause the five-fold increase all by themselves. There were other economic reforms that probably were, were going to result in more rich people, more taxable income from the rich, and more revenue from the rich. But the <coughs> latter curve worked. And now a lesson for today that I'll close on. If you look at the IRS data, the most recent data, what do we see about the rich? And let's think about this in the context of our own lives. I assume most of us in here are just ordinary working slobs. We get most of our income from wages and salaries, so-called W-2 income. If we're lucky, we have a little bit of savings, uh, we maybe get some dividends and some interest, maybe you know, we get a capital gain, maybe it's even significant one year and every, every 10 years or something like that. But for the most part, if our tax rate changes, we don't really have much ability to change our behavior. I mean, if, if Obama raises my tax rate, what am I gonna do? Just hold my breath and sit in front of my computer screen and not work for an hour a day to protest? No, I don't really have much ability Uh, as someone with W-2 income to change my behavior when tax rates change. Sure, maybe I can decide I don't want to go out to the middle of Iowa in February to give a speech for $500 because my tax rate has changed. But, you know, my ability to have supply-side responses aren't significant. But what do we know about the rich? If you look at the IRS data, if you make more than $1 million a year, only one-third of your income is W-2 income. Two-thirds of your income are from, from a business income, capital gains, interest, dividends. What do we know about those sources of income? You have much greater control over the timing, level, and composition of your income when you can simply click, a few, uh, uh, click your keyboard and change the composition of your investments. You can put it in municipal bonds if you want and change your federal tax rate to zero. What about if you make $10 million a year? What if you're a member of the super rich? The ultra 1%. Well, according to the IRS data, 81% of their income is non-wage and salary sources. So when you try to go after these evil, bad, rich people, what's going to happen? You're going after the very people who have the ability to put their capital on the sidelines, as was discussed in the 1920s. They have the ability to shift their investments and their economic activity in ways that dramatically lower their taxable income, and you wind up getting big supply-side Laffer curve-type responses. So I guess the moral of the story is, from Amity's great book, is that the Laffer curve worked in the 1920s. It worked in the 1980s and it would work today. But more important than that, because obviously the goal of economic policy should not be revenue maximization, the real lesson of Amity's book, the real lesson of the Coolidge years, is that a modest-sized government with reasonably low tax rates will give you the right fiscal policy to generate the prosperity that the country needs. Thank you very much. Thank you, Dan.
0: It is interesting to me that the um, same advocates of big government who understand that if you increase taxes on fatty foods, for example, the soda tax, or increase taxes on uh, cigarettes, um, you are going to get less use. At least the, uh, the premise upon which they are working is if you increase taxes on something, you are going to get less of it. And even when it comes to big government proponents, it seems right. that they understand it Except in one area, which is which is taxation itself, Amity, is there anything you want to add to uh, what uh, what uh,
1: uh, oh no, I just want to say thank you um, I want to say no, I want to say uh, thank you well, 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 I think
0: okay we well, in that case, um, we are going to open it up to Q and A so please wait to be called on, uh, wait for the microphone, and if you could please tell us what your name is and who your paymaster is. So uh, we'll start with the gentleman over there. And if you could form your question in a form of a question, rather than a statement.
2: Yes, my name is Steve Hankin. I'm a tire- retired tax attorney. Um, I wanted to ask, why is it, it the, the evidence seems very compelling that there's this laugher effect. And what do people on the other side, what is, what is their argument? For, for not doing it, particularly in light of that you have not just theoretical arguments, you have actual historical facts that bear this out. So you would think that even the most simple-minded person would say, yeah, this works, why don't we do it?
1: Well, uh, there's accounting arithmetic and there's political arithmetic. And, and I think uh, in many of the cases, uh, it's the politics talking. Pretending to be a Keynesianism is window dressing for vote getting, right? It's uh, rejecting the Laffer curve or the idea that people would respond to incentives or freedom is often um, people do it uh, as uh, they hide behind their guild, the guild of economist or accountant. Um, but what they, there's a, often a political agenda there as well. They want to say um, that they're for redistribution to get votes for someone that um so that's the the other is caution as in the case of coolidge i like his temperament you know he, he he doesn't want to concede you get more money until he's really sure this is you know the middle of this book is about coolidge deciding whether he's really sure this is working and there's a, a tree that's growing outside his window that's sort of a measure you know, the economy's growing like a tree, and you know, maybe maybe I was wrong, or I shouldn't have been so cautious. That recalculation recal- we all do every year when we're trying to figure out the future. But but the first impulse tends to be political. Right, I
2: mean. Uh, the only thing I would add to that is that <clears throat> Ezra Klein, the, the left uh, wing guy at the Washington Post, uh, wrote something several years ago, I think it was now, designed to attack the notion of the Laffer curve. And he asked some well-known economists, what's the revenue maximizing rate? And of course, some of these left-wing economists said, oh, it's 70%, maybe even more. But every single one of them, by saying something less than 100%, was actually acknowledging that the Laffer curve exists. So every single one of those economists was actually to the right of the Joint Committee on Taxation. Uh, Now, here's where... When you talk to people at the Joint Tax Committee, uh, I've gotten this response before. And it's it's semi-legitimate. We don't know what the formula would be. There are all these variables in the economy. If we lower tax rates by 20%, we have no idea what's going to happen to taxable income. Yeah, it probably goes up some, but how much? We don't know. If we raise tax rates by 20%, taxable income probably goes down, but we don't know how much. So it's better to be exactly wrong because if you have this simple linear relationship, double tax rates, double tax revenue, you know, it's very simple to do that and there's an exactness to it. Whereas if you do dynamic scoring, you know, you're going to, you know, typical joke about us economists, you ask five of us for an answer, you get nine, nine responses. Uh, and then, of course, the other problem that some people, uh, some of our friends point to, you open up a can of worms. Because if you start doing dynamic scoring, well, if you have the same people at joint tax that are there right now, what if they decide they wanna use Keynesian methodology for dynamic scoring? And then the Keynesians at the, at the Congressional Budget Office start saying that, oh, we're gonna do dynamic analysis and therefore another stimulus plan with more government spending, they're gonna you know, show these multiplier effects. So you have to be very careful if you actually do dynamic scoring, who's gonna be doing it? What's their underlying methodology? Uh, it would be a challenge. Amity, when it
0: comes to redistribution, am I correct in remembering that the president actually said that uh, he would increase taxes even if uh, it reduced the overall revenue?
1: Which president?
0: Our current... Uh, oh, current oh, oh, I don't...
1: I, don't I, would, I wouldn't be surprised. No, I don't know. I think he did say it in an interview.
2: In 2008, during one of his debates with Hillary Clinton, he was asked by Charlie Gibson uh, whether he would raise the capital gains tax rate even if the evidence was that it would lose revenue, and he said yes, he would do it for fairness.
1: I, I think it's, a, it's sort of a parallel. Um, as, as firmly as Coolidge believed, like a clergyman, the government uh, must be smaller, uh, the current president seems to believe, uh, in, a, in a moral way, it, it might be bigger. It, I mean, some of this is temperament of the leader and, and where they're from and what they think is right. Uh, um, In Coolidge's case, the sanctimony uh, I like because he was defending others' freedom.
0: Gentleman in the back of
1: that.
3: Yeah. Hi, my name's Travis Norton. I had a question for you, Mr. Mitchell. Um, Can you comment on Hauser's Law, which says that after World War II, uh, generally speaking, that revenue has equaled 19.5% of GDP, regardless of what the tax rate has been. So in search of the optimal tax rate, is 19.5% something, something that, that you see as being uh, acceptable?
2: There are some people on the right who think Hauser's Law is a protection for us, because uh, no matter how, tax, how high, as you said, tax rates have gone, uh, the government has never collected money beyond a certain level in the U.S. Uh, I wish that was true. Uh, If you look at Europe, there are obviously countries all over the place that have figured out how to get tax revenues well in excess of 19.5% of GDP. Uh, And what you find, if you look at the difference between the U.S. and Europe, the way they get a lot more money is not that they tax the rich more, Uh, The U.S. actually is uh, – among developed nations, we have – we're near the top in terms of uh, the so-called progressivity indexes. The reason that European countries collect a lot more revenue is that they impose much, much higher tax rates on people farther down the income spectrum. And then, of course, they have these big value-added taxes and higher payroll taxes. Uh, So, yes, you can collect a lot more revenue as a share of GDP than the U.S. is doing – but you can't get it from the rich for reasons I discussed. And the Europeans get it by really sticking it to the poor and the middle class with these VAT taxes and these income taxes that take effect with higher rates at much lower levels of income. In Denmark, you hit the top tax rate, which is something like 57%, when you're at about $40,000 of income. I mean, it's astounding. And then with what little after-tax income you have, you have a 25% VAT. Uh, So I'm, I'm amazed people don't just flee en masse. All right, over there. Hi, I'm Dan Goldberg, a professor
3: of law at the University of Maryland Law School. Um, you've both talked about uh, the evils the evils of high tax rates and how high tax rates are counterproductive. Would you feel the same way about high tax rates if we had a consumption tax? And if so, to what extent?
1: Um, it- that's in Lua. Well, well th- that's a very important caveat. Usually they're not in lieu of. That's the problem uh, with the VAT or the consumption tax. It usually it ends up, and you look empirically across the world, uh, people might propose it and fall in love with the theoretical beauty of the consumption tax. But in reality, it's often an addendum to an income tax system. There are very few places where they managed to supplant, right? Am I right? Um, so it ends up being uh, worse or, you know, more, more. Um, and uh, the VAT too, um I wrote a column in Forbes, the, the VAT to the modesty of the VAT discussion now recalls the modesty of the income tax discussion in the teens uh, um, 100 years ago. Most of the parties involved in constructing the income tax thought it'd be a nice little addendum that might bring in some revenue if they cut tariffs. They never imagined the monster, uh, revenue engine I described, the VAT has that power too, in part because of its efficiency. So uh, most of us are wary of advocating it because it it seems politically impossible, trust again, to be trusting enough to be confident that lawmakers would put in a consumption tax and remove the income tax. That level of political trust is absent.
0: We have a lot of questions, but Uh we'll try to get through as many as possible. Gentleman over there in the blue shirt.
3: Hi, I'm Michael Willey, uh, Georgetown Public Policy Institute. Thank you for coming. Um, I have a few friends on the left who simplify Coolidge's presidency down to the phrase, he caused the Great Depression. (laughs) And I was wondering if you could respond to that, and uh, any thoughts you have on that?
1: Uh, um, Post hoc, ergo, propter. Um, You shouldn't say that on TV, though, because it sounds snobby. There were seven downturns in Coolidge's life of the stock market. It's interesting his career just about parallels that of the Dow because the Dow Jones Industrial Average was founded in the 1890s when he just got out of college. Um, And uh, the other six or so, uh, there was no 11-year Great Depression after, so that's the first part of what you have to unpack. in Forgotten Man, I look at the multi, the multiple causes of the Great Depression. Um, the crash isn't really one of them. If you, you know, you can start with monetary international collapse, terrible labor policy, which made it too expensive to employ. That was a new thing in the United States. Historically, wages were not sticky down. Where we let people cut wages when their company was in trouble. That changed under Hoover and, of course, under Roosevelt with upward pressure on wages so people didn't hire. I mean, the, all your friends on the left, the number one thing they will define the Depression as um, as a, is as a long period when people didn't have a job. You can concede that and then look at the labor policy and you can find strong evidence that the, quote unquote, pro-labor policy of upward pressure on wages um, Often compulsory contributed to the abiding nature of the unemployment in the 30s. Um, there are many, many factors. Economic uncertainty in the later 30s, um, quite corollary to the recent period, that made the depression great in magnitude. Uh, Coolidge isn't one of them. If you want to concede one thing, I would uh, not. I would concede that his party supported the tariff. He didn't sign Smoot-Hawley, but his party supported it. He probably would have signed it if he had to. Uh, The tariff uh, Smoot-Hawley did make matters worse, her um, trade uh, at a key vulnerable moment that Hoover had signed. But Hoover is a saint. He has two bad things about him. Sometimes he yelled at his wife, and he went along with the tariff when he knew better. The rest, uh, 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 cool, uh, Coolidge, I mean, I like very much about Coolidge. There, there's, there's hard to find stuff to dislike in Coolidge. I think Coolidge has bad reputation um, for the following reason. Presidents are like sports figures. And if you like one, you have to hate the other. It's it sort of, it, it's a zero-sum game Um, And if you really like Roosevelt, then of course you're gonna hate the person who has the opposite philosophy and policy. And um, whether it's TR or FDR, Coolidge is the opposite of both um, in many areas. So if you think the depression was so bad it took 10 years uh, to fix and Roosevelt did a brave job, then you have to say something really, really wrong made it that bad and then you blame Coolidge in the 20s. But it's kind of like that—it's emotional logic, or sports logic, or zero-sum logic. It's not—it's not there um, in the data.
0: Speaking of Republicans and and uh, Smoot-Hawley, I, I learned from your book that it was actually Taft who um, who signed the income tax into law. Uh,
1: well, right, the scientific taxation, which Dan and I are praising to the skies, is a progressive notion in the sense of Theodore Roosevelt. Well, we can do this—we can be do smarter government. That's what scientific taxation was, the supply side economics of the 20s. So, that's an element of uh, the progressive culture that Theodore Roosevelt helped to create that, that we might like, um, but also might. This idea that there's a perfectibility to the mechanism.
0: The lady over there Barbara O'Brien, student.
1: I have a question about whether, if
0: Coolidge was to run for office in today's world, how do you expect he might fare?
1: Could I answer that Dan? Well, I I was thinking about that and I've had uh, had to answer that uh, quite a bit in the last um, seven weeks. If Margaret Thatcher were to run for Prime Minister of Britain in 1974, um, at a time when the U-turn was just getting going. And the whole idea about the Tories was they're supposed to be flexible and nice. Um, you would have said, she could never win. She's like Coolidge. But then bad things happened in the United Kingdom. And it became obvious that the pound was, you know, the future of Sterling was at stake and that um, somebody strong was necessary. And the Tory party did put Margaret Thatcher forward and she did win and many people um, voted for her. Um, it's sort of like that. We're in a kind of um, lull right now. So uh, a, a conservative austerity person, he's an austerity person, government austerity, seems improbable as a candidate. Coolidge um, wasn't a mean person, but he might have said it. He didn't approve of 47% of the people uh, getting money from government. He thought we should all put in something, you know. Um, and uh, he might have said that, um, but he was nice. So, so uh, it became obvious all of a sudden that Margaret Thatcher was the only one who could do it. And when our U.S. credit rating goes down a bit more and the consequences of our entitlement shortfalls and, uh, um, uh, become more evident in about two weeks, and of course, of course, of course, uh, when our interest rates go up, which they will, um, and rather dramatically because we've strengthened inflation expectation mightily by saying uh, we will have no limit to the in- inflation we'll tolerate, that's current Fed policy, then all of a sudden these austere tough type iron men and ladies will be popular and the whole purpose of putting, uh, and be there to serve us, and the whole purpose of putting this book out now and the lull is so that um, we're, we know the names, the types, and the evidence when the time comes and can make the case more strongly.
0: From your lips to God's ears, um, Andrew, um Andrei Larionov. Oh, is Andre here? He's about to ask you a question.
1: There he is. Nice to see you, colleague.
0: Nice to see you, Emily. Congratulations within your great book. I have a couple of questions for you. The first one, um, were there um, any other policy measures uh, by the Coolidge administrations other than tax policy? That you would mention that uh, would probably contribute to the roaring twenties trade policy or regulation policy, or any uh, else uh, aside of tax policy. And second one, if you just, uh, if I may, just mention right away here, um, could you mention uh, some kind of ideological or moral or any else basis for state of mind of Coolidge? What did contribute? to his approach to his uh, government policies, including tax policy. uh,
1: I'm glad to see you. Uh, uh, We have a flat tax leader. That's what Andre is here. Um, So he did a Coolidge thing in Russia. Um, There were other policies. They kind of had a a reverse Laffer curve, right, with the tariff. They had the tariff too high, and so they didn't get much revenue. (laughs) Um, Coolidge and Mellon hoped to obviate the tariff, they were, the Republican Party itself was tired of the tariff, though it depended on it or believed in it, whatever. Um, so that, that's interesting. Um, of course, generally, Coolidge vetoed 50 laws. He was like a regular Isaac Stern of the pocket veto. Dan was talking about, uh, uh, about technique before. He was an Isaac Stern of the pocket veto. He loved the pocket veto because he didn't like to talk. And the pocket veto in the US, you don't have to give a message about why, as president, you're vetoing something. But you kind of have to trick Congress a bit into passing a law so you can put it in your pocket, kill it over vacation. Um, And he made sure that the Supreme Court uh, upheld the pocket veto. It did so, I think Roger's here. It did so just after he left office. But that was the the Coolidge Justice Department that was probably involved in that. Um, So there are many areas where Coolidge stayed back. uh, uh, But also, he, he had enormous sense of humility towards the job. He didn't really, he grew up under the star of Theodore Roosevelt, an active Republican. And I believe he came to dislike him, though again, Coolidge was extremely civil. and rarely said something mean about another politician. He said to Theodore Roosevelt, this active hero, um, remember that Theodore Roosevelt did the bull moose party, right, and split the vote, so the Democrats won. And when Coolidge was running for some humble officer or other, like state lawmaker, and he wrote his father, the letters to his father are wonderful. I had a moose running against me, but somehow he went away. Coolidge won as a Republican, beat his moose in his constituency. Um, So Coolidge really didn't want to be, but he resented that Theodore Roosevelt broke their party, took it out of power by splitting. And Coolidge was darned if he was going to be a vain politician, a vain uh, president. We all struggle against vanity. He succeeded uh, better than most. And when he chose not to run um, in 1928, I'm very convinced that that was because he thought that staying in office corrupted absolute power corrupts absolutely. There's a famous story of when he walked with Selden Spencer. A senator was trying to cheer him up, and Coolidge was often depressed, then um, said, look at that White House with all those pretty pillars. I wonder who live, gets to live in that nice house, the White House, and Coolidge said, nobody does. They just come and go. That, he, it, it, part of it was his piety, part of it was just sense of service. They had that in their family, but maybe Dan has something to add to this.
2: Nope.
0: <laughs> Do we have any questions? Yes, yeah.
3: oh, sir. Hi, uh, this is for Ms. Schlaes. My name is Theodora Gebhardt. I'm a retired antitrust economist and attorney. Um, If my economic history is correct, I believe one of the legacies of the old war industries board was the growth, significant growth of industrial trade unions or excuse me, trade associations in the 1920s um, with an attitude toward uh, wanting a lot of cooperation with the government, particularly Hoover's Commerce Department and a lot of protection. What was Kowage's attitude toward that uh, development?
1: Well, well, thank you for that interesting question. He started out an antitrust uh, warrior um, as a progressive, as a young politician. He he, um, backed some antitrust legislation against theaters, if you can imagine, uh, while he was a state lawmaker. But he kind of got tired of antitrust after a while. He realized it might not work. He didn't. He didn't like Brandeis very much. He, he said Brandeis wasn't safe. That was about as mean as Coolidge got. He wrote in a letter. Um, and when he got to Washington, of course, there were many areas where there were, you know, groups and uh, who who had things, and he suspected them sometimes when they had monopolies or control. Um, he didn't like that either. So you know, you see, uh, and uh, you see the, all this dueling in his breast. Um, in the case of the war. Uh, he's a politician, so he has to make trade-offs, and sometimes the trade-offs aren't perfect. But um, he really wanted to privatize the ships when possible. He really wanted to privatize the post office, please. Um, it was a very big force in the economy and in government then. And he episodically tried to do so. Uh, and in this book, I tell the story of, of one ship, which was um, which became uh, one of our ships that brought the troops home, a German ship um that kind of became an emblem of waste and he, he uh in german it's the crown princess Cecil, the crown princess and it became the mount vernon after we commandeered it he thought all that was just leftover big government from war. He was closer to a libertarian, and please let me figure out a way to end it or obviate the problem. So if there were unions over there and trade and deals, he was just in a mighty hurry to privatize where he could. And if he had to cut a deal, well, well then okay. He didn't succeed as much as he would have liked. He really wanted to privatize war waste. Um, I think is that, that would be the way he put it.
0: Go to the left and then come back to the center. So. Yeah,
3: over here. Thank you. Ivan Yeland, uh, the Independent Institute. Uh, you've been oh, comparing uh, sort of Coolidge to Reagan, but I see them as taking uh, much different approaches. I mean, uh, Reagan's, uh, for all the rhetoric, is ne- economic... Uh, well, not his economic numbers, but his his uh, tax numbers and his budget numbers aren't that good. And he sort of focused on taxes, cutting taxes and not cutting government, starving the beast, when the beast never gets starved. So Ronald Reagan, I think, was the worst post-war Republican in tax in terms of reducing revenues. I mean, excuse me, in in terms of reducing, <coughs> excuse me, reducing revenues less than the other presidents. And also he increased uh Uh, government spending as a portion of GDP, so wouldn't Coolidge be a better model for Republicans, uh, conservatives, libertarians than Reagan since he was able to reduce spending so much, uh, which seems to be uh, a key as well?
1: Well, I think so. I think he's, in a number of ways, he's stronger than Reagan. Um, He's a different temperament. He was for austerity, Politicians don't like to say they're for that, but he was for government austerity so the private sector could have fun. So that's why I wrote the book. I mean, a book is a a considerable um, allocation of resources. Here was this hero we never knew about, just sitting there on the other side of history behind obscured by Roosevelt. And he did all these things that that might be relevant to today. And he did them rather well. He wasn't um, a television personality, necessarily. Although he was extremely popular and good on radio, contra you know this this myth of only Roosevelt being good on radio, they said he had wire in his voice on the radio. How come we don't know about him? His tax rate was twenty five. His budget was balanced. He cut the budget. He you know um, so rather than uh, bring down Reagan for all his flaws, I would just say here is Coolidge why don't we know why don't our children know about him? Why do they laugh about him in school? Why do the teachers laugh about him? Um, Why would uh, and and what is wrong with our pedagogy? So so I that's why I went back to him. He has some warts, but I think he's fabulous. He's the hero I never knew I had good for New England that they produced him. He's of utility for all America. He's profoundly modern, too. He's not just sort of some quirky New England person. I think one reason we didn't know him is um, that the Republicans aren't that different from the Democrats and both like um, active government, more like Theodore Roosevelt. So they, too, shut him out. You don't see Coolidge in Goldwater's rhetoric. You certainly, uh, as far as I can tell, don't see him in Nixon. You don't see him in Ford. Reagan put his picture back um, in a prominent place in the cabinet room in the White House, and uh, for that, I, I have a much appreciation of Reagan. Then,
2: Yeah, uh, I'm, I'm a big Coolidge fan, too. I would put him as the best president of the last century. Uh, but let me say something in defense of Reagan. Uh, government spending only fell by one percentage point of GDP during Reagan's tenure, which isn't that much of an achievement. Uh, But I think it's important to recognize what the trend line was as he came into office. He managed to reverse that trend line and it was heading down when he left office and the five-year CBO forecast for if Reagan's policies had been left in place, it would have continued coming down. But even when you look at the composition of spending, uh, total domestic spending was reduced by two and a half percentage points of GDP, uh, which is really a remarkable achievement. Now, yes, some of that, was put back into defense, and as a good libertarian, uh, we're just as skeptical of defense spending as of non-defense spending. But I I think there's a good argument that that played a role in uh, bringing down the Soviet empire. So unlike the vast majority of the budget, you could actually make an argument that there was some positive rate of return. So did did Reagan do anything close to what many of us wanted him to do? No. But I still think there are some very real substantial achievements in his uh, tenure. In the back?
3: Hi, I'm Eric Bremen. I'm an entrepreneur. Um, I wanted to ask especially Mr. Mitchell, uh, based on was glancing over your your paper over here. And if you could, from the... You mentioned three different tax systems uh, that are more consumption-based, more efficient. If you could point out from those three or any other that you might wish, which one, if you had to pick one, is economically most efficient? And then if you could paint the picture for us a bit, uh, thinking more on the political spectrum of possibility, what would be a few um, modifications or changes that we could hope to see Congress push forward, not necessarily under this president, but perhaps under the next? Um, if you could comment on that. Thank you.
2: Uh, well, that's an entire panel in and of itself, but th- th- the simple answer is that You can't have good tax policy of any type if government is continuously growing in size, and that's the challenge that we face. Uh, So we're more likely to get bad tax policy, higher tax rates, and add on value added tax. But if we're gonna talk about the fantasy world that we all hope to somehow have someday, what we want is a consumption-based tax. Now, what does that mean? It doesn't mean that it's collected at the cash register. Uh, it could be a flat tax, or so the Ha rabushka model. That's the same thing as a national sales tax, which is the same thing as a value-added tax. They all tax economic activity one time, with no double taxation, at one low rate, with no distortions, loopholes, deductions, credits, exemptions, and stuff like that, other than a basic allowance uh, to protect low-income people from having to pay tax. Any one of those systems, but not more than one of those systems, uh, is the theoretical ideal we should be shooting for. But again, that theoretical ideal is extremely difficult to achieve when you now have a federal government, instead of consuming four to five percent of GDP as it was during the Coolidge years, it's now consuming 23 percent of GDP. And if we leave entitlements on autopilot uh, before the we all pass on to our uh, to our reward, we're going to have a big penalty, and that's going to be a government that's consuming 40 to 50 percent of GDP. So ultimately, we have to constrain the size and burden of government spending. If we can do that, we can then figure out whether we call it scientific taxation or not not, we can figure out what's the least destructive way of raising that revenue. My own personal preference is the Harvard-Bushka model flat tax, because the downside risk of doing a flat tax is you degenerate back to the current system. The downside risk of trying to do a VAT or a national sales tax is politicians do a bait and switch. They promise to phase out the income tax. They conveniently forget to do that. uh, And then all of a sudden you're stuck with both and presto, you're France.
0: We have lost five minutes, but The gentleman over there has been very
2: patient. Thank you. My name is Judd Kessler. I'm a partner in a law firm and an arbitrator. Um, And I never thought I would ask this question of uh, of
3: Amity, but uh, she seems the perfect one to ask it of. In college,
2: I learned that the most incompetent politicians in history, were probably the people opposing the Russian Revolution. The Bolsheviks meant majorityites, and Mensheviks cho- was the name chosen by the opposition,
3: which meant minorityites. We're faced with a whole young generation that listens to the word progressives and believes it. Has anyone suggested another opposition
2: slogan than conservatives? libertarian
1: liberals liberals you got to go for liberals it's but it, it's a lot it's lost so it's a very aggressive thing to do because then you say what liberal oh, you mean liberal like Rachel Maddow or you mean what do you mean classical liberal well, of course you mean classical liberal but I, I think liberal I think libertarian as wonderful it is as it is I, I'd go for liberal I mean let try and reclaim it
3: Roger Pilon, Cato Institute. Uh, Amity, in your um, discussion and explanation of the Roaring Twenties, what did you discover about uh, the role of the Fed and the relationship, if any, between Coolidge uh, and the Fed uh, or Mellon and the Fed?
1: I I was thinking Andre would ask this question. Has uh, Andre probably read Rothbard? and uh, Andre read Benjamin Anderson? mister uh, the the, uh, the there have been conservative critics, or Austrian critics, of the 20s. They said, think the Fed was too loose, and that we caused a bubble, and there may be something to that. Um, the, the Treasury and Fed law were different then. The Treasury, it wasn't the Fed law we have now, which was passed in the 30s with Mariner Echols, so the Treasury was closer to the Fed, okay. Either way, Coolidge thought they had to be independent. Um, The Treasury was independent, as far as he was concerned, because he was such an extreme delegator. So if Mellon did something and there were negative consequences, he, Coolidge, personally might rue it, but it would be even more damaging if he butted in. That was his temperament. What I learned, I mean, in terms of insight and history, um, what we all learned in school was, I don't know, something complicated about how... Um, in New York at the Fed. The New York Fed under this structure was more important than it was subsequently. Benjamin Strong had a special relationship with Montague Norman in the UK and uh, he put the interest rate too low to be nice to his friend and they wrote each other these intimate letters which a lot of us have read in Lester Chandler. What I, my insight in so far as I had one um, about whether, about interest rates um, was that maybe interest rates were too low at some points in the twenties? We one you want to remember uh, um, the stock market prices went up, but other prices didn't. So that would suggest that they were okay. And but if they were too low, um, they were low because Mellon wanted the Europeans to be able to repay their debts, which is different from this narrow answer of what the U.S. Fed said to the you know to Montagu Norman. if if he could make interest rates low enough in the U.S. that European governments could refinance, we would not have another war. And if they defaulted, that would be uh, destabilizing for them and us too, and bad for, no one wanted default, that they just walked away from their debts. And you can see Mellon over and over again basically uh, making a choice, or the Fed and Mellon making a choice, we'll have interest rates, they might be slightly lower, Um, but it's good for Europe to be able to refinance, then Europe won't go Nazi. They were wrong. But um, it, but it, it was a, a logical argument um, as far as a, a creditor goes. And you also want to remember what we forget is there was a recession technical, um, I think in 1927, when Ford uh, halted production in order to make the Model A. And they knew that would happen because Ford was the big, like a Microsoft bigger in the economy. Um, so then they began to you know, low, deal with that. Uh, they, uh, they apparently, uh, they overrated the importance of the recession and underrated the danger of, uh, of um, I don't know, of, of being too easy. But these are minor errors. I do not agree with Rothbard or the others that Coolidge, this was Coolidge's fault. Um, on the contrary, he was really uh, big about staying out of it, just as out of the stock market. And I don't believe it was as dire as they allege either. I think Benjamin Anderson happens to be a little bit wrong on this point. Um, uh, decide, despite his otherwise perfect work. Um...
0: <laughs> well, I'm afraid we're out of time, so thank you very much. Please join us upstairs for lunch. Thank you.
1: Okay, thank you. Thank you.